I believe it means taking risks and being willing to put yourself out there and to the degree that you can supporting those who don't have the same ability to take risks that you do. So I think women very much rise together. It's very important to help each other out, to reach out for someone to extend a hand to you who's ahead of you, but also to reach behind you and make sure you're pulling people up at the same time. Welcome to the Genius Women podcast. I'm your host, Yulia Denisuk, a published travel photographer and writer, an entrepreneur and founder of Genius Women. Four years ago, I quit my corporate job to pursue my dreams. And today, I'm on a mission to help other women pursue their creative dreams as well. This is Genius Women, a podcast where we explore living a rich, meaningful, beautiful creative life through in-depth conversations with brave women pursuing their wildest dreams. If you're ready to put your fears and doubts to the side, go after your dreams, and step into your brilliance, you're in the right place. Let's go. We just heard a few words of wisdom from our guest, Jillian Morris, co-founder and CEO of Hitlist, an app that alerts users when flight prices drop. Before entering the startup world, Jillian worked as a consultant and journalist in Turkey, Afghanistan, China, the Gulf States, and Syria. Jillian's diverse travel experiences have taught her early on how to take risks and be okay no matter the outcome. That has helped her become the brave entrepreneur she is today. She's also tried a lot of different things in her path, like being an opera singer in Paris or living in an artist's residence in Istanbul. In this chat, we talk about why the pressure of figuring out who you want to be when you grow up is not all that it's made up to be. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Before we get to today's episode, I just wanted to say that if you're a new listener, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Be sure to go to geniuswomen.com slash travel and grab your free guide to getting your travel stories published. And remember, women is spelled as W-O-M-X-N. Again, you can find that free guide at geniuswomen.com slash travel. Okay, let's dive in. All right, Jillian, welcome to our podcast. I am so, so, so excited for you to be here. You have such an interesting path and interesting story, and I can't wait to get into it. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want to start our chat with a question that I always start with, which is, tell me, what was Julian dreaming about as a kid? Oh, what an interesting question. I I was actually cleaning out my childhood bedroom this summer, and I found this early project where we were supposed to research a career that we might want to be. And the career that I chose to research was becoming a cartoonist. I think I was really oh in the Garfield goodness. at the time. <laughs> I have no idea how that relates to the present day. Um, I was also really into ancient Egypt, dolphins, and swimming. Somehow, I just totally see you in all of those things. <laughs> I look forward to how you're going to tie this into the rest of my history. Dolphins especially. You do live in Puerto Rico right now, so maybe water, sea, something along those lines might make sense. I spend a lot of time in the water. It's true. And where did you grow up? I was born in New York City, 
and mm. I grew up in Connecticut. What was it? What was it like growing up there? I feel very lucky. You know, I grew up in a very green place, but it was a commuter town. So my dad commuted into New York City, and but we were in the suburbs, and I went to good public schools the whole time. It was a safe neighborhood, the kind of place where you could go and knock on your, you know, I could, when I was seven years old, say, oh, I'm going to go to Rachel's house to play. And my mom wouldn't have to worry about me. And I was really involved in my swim team and my church choir and a bunch of very American type things. You know, it's funny, a lot of people that I'm talking to are talking about that feeling of being able to knock on your neighbor's door and just hang out or just play with their kids and ask for the salt or whatever. I feel like a lot of us are missing that feeling, especially right now. Actually, I will say one thing that I think was unique about my upbringing in that environment. I do think a lot of people were in sort of single family homes which we were, I, I lived with my parents and two brothers. And we always had guests, though, we always had other people coming through, whether it was a foreign exchange student, or some random family that were friends of friends who were renovating their house and needed a place to stay or a distant relative or things like or a rowing coach or something like this, you never really do. I, I would often come home and there would just be someone that I didn't know. And my mom would say, oh, and this person's going to be sharing your room with you for the next two months, that type of thing. That's amazing. It sounds like you got that exposure to a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different stories early on, which I think is always a, a benefit to expose kids to for sure. That's yeah. awesome. So, okay, so you wanted to be a cartoonist. I don't, I don't know if that exists, but did you sign up for like a cartoonist club or something? Or did you pursue that in any direction? You know, I, I think I did. I tried drawing my own cartoons, but I think it's very painstaking and to, to do all the illustrations and I'm not a very good drawer. And mm -hmm. I, I think, honestly, I just had to pick something and that was it. I my Maybe the overlying thing for my childhood, really up until my mid-20s, was having no idea what I really wanted to do, being interested in many things, and honestly feeling I'm hardworking. I'm, I feel like I'm fairly smart. If I could just choose something to focus on, I feel like I could be good at it, but I just could never figure out I, what I wanted to go deep on until my mid-20s. I actually, I think I figured out what I wanted to do, and I've been doing it ever since. Amazing. I, I want to get into that for sure. But I just want to unpack a little bit something that you said, which I, I feel like a lot of us are, um, will definitely know what it feels like when it's like you have all this pressure, right? We have a lot of pressure in our early 20s to be able to say that we have it figured out. We know what we want to do. I mean, many of us are facing that choice when we're entering universities, right? What the heck do you, do you want your major to be and all of that? And I think it's just important to point out that a lot of us have been faced with that pressure. I've been there as well. And the, the more we can relieve some of that and say, you know what, uh, it's okay if you don't know what the heck you want to be. I'm just now figuring out in my mid-30s, I'm just figuring out, oh, this is what I should be doing with my life. It's just so much pressure to put on young kids, I think, to be able to know what that is, right? Oh, absolutely. I remember also, I mean, in a lot of parts of the world, you have to choose your major in university when you start, you apply to a specific program. And that was always going to be very hard for me. But 
I also think that it's it's okay if you don't figure out a single path and the world is becoming even ever more tolerant of people switching and reinventing themselves. I think it's also wonderful to go deep on one thing and if you figure out it's not working for you to not get bogged down in it and not say, oh no, I invested all this time in this education. I have to focus on this one thing. But if it's really not making you happy, you can do something different. Yes. And, and I think it's great that you brought this up and that you voiced this and, and, and gave voice to this because I do think that it's so important that we acknowledge that. And I agree that the world is becoming ever more tolerant of all these different paths. But at the same time, it's hard to do, right? Especially if you've invested all that time and effort into a certain path. It's still a hard thing to do to acknowledge it to yourself and to others in your surrounding that I'm going to pivot now and start something else. It's, it's, it's a brave thing for someone to be able to take that step. So I just think it's important that we, we talk about that. So you mentioned that somewhere around the, your mid-20s, you actually were able to figure out what it is that you want to do for the rest of your life. So how did you get to that? Was there like a specific moment or was it something that you did in college or like uh, walk us through that path? Sure. Um, like I said, I, I was always trying to figure out what I wanted to go deep on. And so my professions, if I'm going to try and sum it up and I'll do less than two minutes. As a child, I made jewelry and sold it to boutiques. And I also bred parakeets and sold them to pet stores. This was when I was in middle school and high school. And then I had grown up singing in a choir. I ended up moving to Paris and singing professionally for a year opera when I was 18, 19. Oh, and wow. I then, didn't know that about you. That's amazing. <laughs> That's it, was, amazing. Uh, it was an odd, odd side path. Um, came back for university, um, spent summers working for a nonprofit, teaching English in China, coaching rowing, and really working for a university. I was really just sampling all these things. After teaching English in China, moved to Istanbul and was a journalist. I worked for CNN for three months before transitioning into being a consultant. And that was my first real career. I've spent three years living and working throughout the Middle East and Central Asia, working on high-risk investments. So I would go and assess if someone wanted to build a hotel or build a factory or a power plant or something like this. I would go and assess what they needed to be aware of and produce these reports on um, the general economic and political and safety situation on the ground. And through that work, which it was definitely the thing that I found most rewarding and interesting of all of the random careers that had led up to it. But I found myself after three years in a position where I said, I, I could continue doing this the rest of my life. But I write these reports, people sometimes follow what I say, most of the time don't. I felt like sometimes I was basically a check mark that they needed to produce, and then they were going to go and do what they had planned anyway. And I looked at the issues that I'd seen, and in particular in these sort of developing world and conflict zone that I'd been working in, but also among my friends who had taken maybe much more conventional career paths, a lot of whom were very unhappy and stuck. And I determined that the industry that I felt had the most positive impact on the world is travel and tourism. I believe that it's on the side of the developing countries. It is this massive driver of 
economic redistribution that also brings a lot of it brings a ton of good jobs at all ends of the economic spectrum from people who are working as cooks or cleaners to tour guides and concierges at hotels to management of people, you know, uh, micro entrepreneurship, someone who runs their own tour company, that type of thing. And that can have a really positive impact on economies. It also promotes the development of infrastructure that can be used for all sorts of other things. Um, you know, if you build a factory, usually what happens is you create a bunch of low level, basically slave labor jobs. You often will pollute the environment and the owner of the factory makes a ton of money and becomes very rich and maybe produces some cheap goods for someone somewhere. That's one method of development. And then another one is this alternative where, like I said, if you have a tourism development, you develop a resort or even a, an attraction of some sort, you create all these jobs, you spur just much more positive economic development. So that was one side of it. And then the other side of it is, like I said, people, I think, people who are very rooted in one place and only see one corner of the world tend to be a lot less happy than people who move around a little bit more. Uh, I saw that certainly in myself, but there's also a lot of science to back this up. So the sort of fusion of these two things was, I want to work in travel and tourism, and I want to make it so that I want to inspire and enable people to travel more. And have this become a larger part of spending, have people spend less money on rent and buying cars and having all these things associated with a stationary life and spend proportionally more of their money on travel and drive that into the economy. And it has all these positive effects. So that's been my sort of life thesis. And, and then it's just been working on that ever since. Was that when you went more deeply into journalism on the travel side, or was that uh, was that with your other uh, ventures after journalism? Or I'm, I'm just trying to see the overlap there. For me, it was post journalism. So my my stint in journalism was very brief in terms mm -hmm. of working for CNN. I found working on the news side of things very very focused on just clickbait and attention and making the world seem much worse than it actually is. Mm -hmm. And I didn't enjoy that. And I, I there was one point, I forget if I ever told you this before, is my editor, I was pitching some story and he said, it was some story about, it was about these local entrepreneurs. And he said, stop pitching me this human interest bull. I want more stories of dead babies being raped. No, no. Yeah. That was the direct oh. quote. To my discredit, I, I waited a week before I quit. I didn't quit on the spot, but mm. I just couldn't sit with that. And then I got into the consulting. And like I said, it was very, on one hand, it felt rewarding. I do feel like I was able to help some interesting economic developments happen, but I didn't have a lot of control over the project and it didn't seem like I was making the impact that I wanted to. Goodness. Oh my gosh. No, you definitely didn't tell me that uh, story because I would have remembered that. And yeah, I can totally see how it's, it can get you jaded about the side of journalism. You know, luckily for me, I guess I, I work in a different side of it, right? Which is this whole travel journalism and uncovering stories about different cultures. And it's a lot, a lot less uh, news and clickbait focused. Mm -hmm. And a lot more narrative driven, at least the types of stories that I try to pursue. 
But yeah, I think maybe that's also a reason why I stayed away from the news side of this, because there's also opportunities in the travel journalism for that. But I've just never been drawn to that type of work. So tell me, so you then decided that travel industry is where your, your passion and your path lies. How were you able to figure out where to start or what to do first? Was there anyone who was guiding you on this path? Or maybe you had some incredible examples of other women entering the industry? Or how was that like for you? I wish I could say that I had more sort of mentorship or guidance But I do have some wonderful people who inspired me on the tech development side. So when I thought about getting involved in the travel industry, I thought, you know, on the base level, I could just be a travel agent, right? Mm -hmm. I was already basically the travel agent for most of my friends. And I really enjoyed that sharing a place with people and making them feel more comfortable about visiting them there. I was living in Istanbul at the time and uh, managed to convince over three years, I had 138 house guests because I keep track of everything weirdly. But I wanted to do something that would scale. If I was a travel agent, I knew I would only be able to work with tens of people at a time, maybe. And I wanted to do something that could impact the entire industry to shift the way that, that we travel. And to do that, I knew I needed to get involved in technology. And that was where I was, I was very lucky to have been at school at the same time with Mark Zuckerberg. And I had a few other friends who ended up starting big companies. I didn't know Mark well at all, but I guess it just made it seem like it was possible because I saw these people who were my peers who went on to start big companies. And I therefore decided I needed to learn how to code. So I started learning using Code Academy online. It's free. I highly Mm -hmm. recommend it. And I started doing these things called hackathons, which are usually they're a weekend long and people come together and they try and develop something, a tool, an app, something. And at the end of the weekend, there's a judging session. You pitch and you get judged and then someone wins. And sometimes the prize money could actually be quite good. And so I got into that world and, and then played around with a few different ideas before building Hitlist. I want us to get into Hitlist and that journey for you as well. But I think just want to uh, point out something that you mentioned that I think is so important and that we don't always immediately think about, which is that power of seeing someone else in your vicinity and in your community doing something that you otherwise might think is impossible, Right. I think you said that uh, Mark and some other people were in, in your school and you saw them building these big, beautiful things. So you saw someone doing something like this and you immediately thought that I can do it as well. And I think that's just so important. And if someone has an idea or has a dream and is not surrounded with people who are doing similar things, it just becomes so much more difficult to imagine that you would be able to do that as well. So I I think we sometimes overlook how important that is, but that just, I think it's crucial actually for us to be able to achieve what we said to achieve, that power of imagination. Well, I, I actually think there's another thing that was really important to giving me the confidence to think that I could do something here. It was definitely seeing advanced examples, but it was also traveling. So I had gotten used to taking off and solo traveling. I took the leap when I was 18 and I moved to France on my own 
And it was crazy, but I just, I kept on thinking, well, you know, the worst case scenario isn't that bad. The upside is good. I had saved up some money from my childhood ventures and I was just continuously rewarded by, you know, taking these risks and then having it work out even better than I ever imagined. And I had such amazing experiences, met so many interesting people. And so I had a track record built up in my head that if I take a risk, it usually will work out. Gosh, I love that. I I got I think you you're absolutely right. You're you're absolutely right. And I can think of so many moments when the same has happened to me, right? And and I've also been known to take risks and to start things and not be afraid to do that. And I think you're absolutely right. And it may be even even a more important experience that you got to live through, right? For so many years that prepared you for this path that you were on now. That's awesome. That's amazing. Okay, so tell us about Hitlist then. So you decided that you wanted something that could be scalable and big and could impact the way people experience travel. And you learned how to code, which is amazing. And you said, now I'm going to build this thing. Well, to be fair, I learned how to code enough to hack something together, but definitely not enough to build something. <laughs> I, it was about building a team. That was really the, I would say, the most crucial thing to how we've been able to get where we got was the, the people that came and joined me along the way. But fundamentally, Hitlist is an app that alerts you when flight prices drop. And so the thinking is, uh, a lot of people will say there's the best time to book a flight is midnight on a Tuesday or something. And that's totally not true. Um, it actually was historically true, but like 20 years ago, and the technology has completely changed. So it just doesn't apply. But these urban legends persist. And there are all these people who will travel if they get a good deal, but they're um, not going to. And it, if you're searching for a flight, you only do it you know, one time or a couple times and the flight price is changing constantly. So rather than going and checking the flight price constantly, you can just set an alert and we send you a notification if it hits your target. And the other big crucial thing is we allow you to be flexible about it because we know a lot of times people, they're, they really want to go to Paris. And if you go to Kayak or Google Flights or any of these things and you put in the search for Paris and it's too expensive, you might give up, but you might actually be flexible. You might be willing to go to Paris for a week in the summer. And you're never going to go and search for every single possible date combination on Kayak or Google Flights. And so we allow you to set up alerts that are as broad or as specific as you want. So you could say, I want to go to Paris this week. Or you could say, I want to go to Paris for seven to 10 days between July 1st and August 31st. So we do the searching and processing and we send you alerts when they come out. That's amazing. I'm definitely one of those people who, you know, if I see a deal, I will, and I have uh, uh, been known to, to hop on the flight. You said the most important thing in building Hitlist was getting a, the right team around you. So how did you go about doing that? Well, there are a few steps when it was just an idea, and it was actually a different idea that I was working on. Um, I was in a position where I was barely technical, so I knew I needed to recruit a good engineer. And I didn't have much money. I didn't have any money at that time. I had my own savings. And I was like, how am I going to convince a good engineer to come and work on this idea with me for just equity? 
It's actually a really hard sell. I was living in Istanbul and I had this amazing apartment. It was this sort of artist loft at the top of an old building. It was super cheap, but it was super beautiful. And I said, and I also had a lot of frequent flyer miles because my consulting work, I was traveling all the time. So I said, I will fly you to Istanbul and you will have this apartment. And I would go and sleep on my friend's couch um, for two weeks because I figured when I asked them to be a co-founder, that's super scary, but anyone can wrap their head around two weeks and then we could sample working together. And my goal was to find someone who could then be convinced to leave whatever work they were doing and come and be my co-founder. So I wrote up this little ad and sent it to everyone I knew who was at all technical. And it ended up being really popular. People posted it on the internal job boards at Facebook and at Expedia and all of my friends forwarded it around. And I ended up getting these amazing candidates who were all interested in coming and working on my idea for two weeks. And I, I, you can't see me, but I'm putting two weeks in air quotes because of course, you know, I was focused on something longer term. And so I ended up finding my co-founder through that. And uh, he it's great. My, my first co-founder and we ended up working for a while on our own. And we ended up raising our first little bit amount of money. And we ended up finding through a lot of trial and error, another great person who joined us as our second co-founder. who was an amazing, uh, also an amazing developer. Gosh, I just love how unconventional your approach was. I can absolutely see uh, that so many people would be interested in that opportunity, right? Having this beautiful loft in Istanbul for two weeks. That's incredible. And I, I, I need to talk to you separately about Istanbul too, because that's one of the places that I'm considering moving to. So... I will be talking to you after the podcast as well, for sure. I, I love the city. Um, and it's it's amazing that you got to live there for some time. Actually, I'll mention it now just because it could be useful to anyone. I, I have a blog that I've been keeping since 2008 very intermittently. But I actually wrote a lot when I was in Istanbul. I was there 2009 to 2012. And I do have a series of five blog posts that covers everything from I want to just visit Istanbul briefly and want to know where I should stay and how I exchange money and that type of thing down to, okay, I'm here for a month and what are the best restaurants and underexplored places to I want to travel around Turkey to I want to move here and how do I get my residence permit and all this type of stuff. Actually, some of that's probably out of date, but it's my blog is at jillian.im. So you can search there and there are a bunch of resources that are still, it's, I mean, obviously a little outdated, but a lot of it stands true to, I mean, Istanbul is an 8,000 year old city. So a lot of it still applies. Yes, absolutely. Besides the status of the Hagia Sophia <laughs> at this point, we'll link to Jillian's blog for sure in the episode notes. So go check it out if you're as interested and as in love with Istanbul as I am. Yeah, so that sounds, first of all, so incredible that you were out there in Istanbul building a team and getting funding and building hit list. Tell me about some of the challenges that you had while doing that, especially I think I, I might have heard you speak about this somewhere on this issue of getting funding as a woman in this very male-oriented space. Yeah, there are all the statistics out there. Women raise about 4% of the venture capital that men do. And I I talked to 323 investors over the course of raising money for Hitlist and wow. ended up getting investment from about 30 of them. 
very small checks. And I do sometimes hear these people, the, uh, especially usually young white and Asian men in Silicon Valley, just talking about how easy it is to fundraise, how they got $1.5 million with one meeting and this type of thing. And that was definitely not my experience. I was an outsider in so many senses. And so, you know, whether it was because I was a woman or whether it was because I had this crazy background of being an opera singer or journalist consultant in Istanbul, or whether it was any number of other things, I just didn't fit into the mold of a traditional mm -hmm. technology investor. It's impossible to say how much of it was being a woman and how much of it was not, but there were definitely a few instances in which I did encounter things that were very specifically issues with being a woman, both in terms of people being more interested in dates than in funding. I, I also just found the weird thing was in the Middle East, I always felt like I was taken very seriously as a competent business person. And partially that might be, and this is, this is a little unfair and unfortunate, but it might be because I'm American and that uh, I was assumed to be educated to a certain degree or that type of thing. Whereas in Silicon Valley and in the tech world, I was seen as a woman and therefore not as uh, technical or risk-taking or this type of thing. The irony um, of that, right? Yeah, yeah. I know. Everyone always thinks that the Middle East is such a anti-woman place. But yes. it, it's, I, it's really not I, – I don't want to say that there aren't very important issues to get into there, but I generally found the attitude among people in the Middle East to be very – much, oh my God, my wife is so much smarter than me. I ask her advice on everything. There was a lot of respect for women and their abilities. And the fact that women were expected to stay at home was not seen as something like, oh, they're not capable of work. It was more, this is a privilege. We don't want our women to have to work because anyone given the choice would of course rather just hang out at home and be with the kids, like male or female, that's clearly the best thing. That would be the most desirable thing. So it was seen as a sort of privilege that women wouldn't have to work rather than women are incapable of work. And that's a very different framing that I feel a lot of people don't understand. Obviously, there are issues with that as well. But I do think there's something to acknowledging that maybe it's not the same attitude of repression, you know, that people sometimes assign to it. Yeah, I think you are raising an interesting and important point, which is this is all from from a Western-centered point of view, right? We put judgment on what's happening culturally in the Middle East with issues around women and you know marriage and all of that, which is, again, not to say that there aren't real issues. There are for sure in the Middle East and in many other regions, but I think it's coming from that place of, oh, the way we do things here is the right way or the only way. And of course, it's not, right? There are many different ways. That's one thing. And then the other thing that I want to just also uh, raise is that what I also see is also a bit generational in a way, because in my line of work, I have hung out a lot with young, incredible, amazing people in places like Jordan and some other countries in the region, they're probably more American than me in some opinions and viewpoints that they have. I guess what I'm trying to say that there is a lot of intricacy in a lot of these issues anywhere in the world, right? I'm curious, actually, what you just said with 
they might be more American than you on some issues. What would those issues be? Well, so I maybe it's not even a good comparison to compare me because I don't even consider myself an American. I've never felt American in in how I view the world and some of my uh, viewpoints. But in, in other ways, I am very American because I've lived here for 20 years. So, of course, the outlook has, has rubbed on me as well. But it's it's in issues of or, or on questions of progressive matters, right? On women's rights, on equal pay, on having the right conditions at the workplace, on questions like that. The young uh, women that I meet in Jordan, for example, are extremely have extremely progressive views but it's also a subset of the population right i guess i should have caveated that too because it it all depends on where you are in societal structures because the people that i'm talking about right now are educated of a certain social class and they hold these more progressive more liberal views uh for sure in terms of like the women's women's rights and and what what the women can do with her life or not but yeah it's we can spend the whole podcast episode on that and we should maybe one day get into that because it's a very interesting subject for sure so you said that you uh, talked to 320 something investors in that time and about 30 of them said yes to you what kept you going right as you kept hearing no from the majority of the people that you met with how did you keep going Hmm. Blind delusional confidence. Uh, you know, I, that's, I love that. I, I, I don't mean to make light of that. And I don't think it's good to be delusional. But I think at the same time, you have to be to a degree. I just felt like I said, I, I've had this good training in risk taking, that if I put myself out there, it's generally worked out well. And I knew that I knew my business. And I wasn't maybe good at explaining it, but I knew that our numbers were actually solid and I just needed to get better at telling my story and convincing other people of it. But also to a degree, at a certain point, I could see that the business was doing well enough that at a certain point, I wouldn't have to convince other people that I, I would we would be able to reach profitability. And I, 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 but I do look back on it and I am amazed and it was soul crushing in many ways, but it was also an incredible learning experience. And I'm, I'm very glad that I uh, kept on persisting and I've learned something from every meeting. Some of the lessons were really inspiring. Some of the lessons were very disheartening and yet I'm glad I still figured that I'm at them out early. I did have a, a period early on where I had someone who said he wanted to lead around and he was going to help me raise all this money. And he took me down this path that ultimately I realized that he'd been playing me in order mm-hmm. to buy more time and get other people to put in money because he didn't actually have the money that he wanted to put in. And he also was encouraging me to spend money saying that he was going to invest imminently. It was definitely completely my mistake as a manager, but I was doing this and I was following his advice. And I ended up getting to a point where we were almost out of money. And I said, listen, you've been talking about putting this money in for a long time. We really need that money now. And he said, oh yeah, well, you're almost out of money. Actually, I'll give you the money, but only at these completely different terms, basically only at half the valuation. So he was going to end up with twice the company the percentage of the company that we had negotiated. And I had the, to make the decision between 
taking the money, which we really needed for the company to keep it alive or, or walking away and trying to figure out a different way. And I just said, I, I couldn't work with this guy knowing that he'd done this at that stage. And I did walk away from the deal, but that meant that I had to, at that point, we had, the company was nine people and I had to let six of them go. So it ended up being just myself, one co-founder and another person. And my co-founder said, I have a baby on the way. I want to buy a BMW. I can't be in this risky environment. So he ended up leaving the company as well. It was a very tough period where it was very unclear if Hitlist would come through. But again, I'm just so glad that I learned that lesson early on rather than working with that person. And then maybe five years later with much bigger stakes on the line, having that happen. So at that time, it, it was horrible to go from nine people to ultimately two before crawling our way back out. But we also changed our strategy and we changed what we were doing and definitely emerged stronger for it. You just uncovered so many gems in, in everything that you said in your experience. First of all, how incredibly important it is to keep going and to persist in the face of hearing no's in your face all the time, right? And that applies to almost any project or almost any endeavor that you do, creative, entrepreneurial, something that's outside of the kind of a more safe and traditional route. That's so hugely important, right? And, and we hear these stories all the time. Elizabeth Gilbert, who, who was starting out as a writer and she was waitressing and she was shopping around her stories and she kept getting rejections again and again. And in my own experience and in my view, persistence is really key on this path because without it, Almost nothing else matters because 100% you will encounter rejections and you will encounter all kinds of failures and people will not believe in you and in your story and in your idea from the very beginning, right? Everybody's so busy. Every, nobody has time to pay attention to what, what you're trying to do or really start believing in you. And so if you don't have that yourself, like you said, you knew that Hitlist had the numbers, you believed it in your bones, in what you were building. And that's what kept you going when you kept hearing no from people. And I just think that's so incredibly important. And then the other thing you said is going through that really difficult experience of having to fire people, which I, I can't even imagine. I never had to go through that, but I, I, I can imagine that it's uh, pretty difficult emotionally to, to do that. Then you had that wisdom also, or maybe this wisdom is 2020 for you, but you recognize that you went through that experience and you learned to trust kind of the signals when somebody's not fitting well with you and maybe energetically or because it sounds like you had the signs that that person might not be the best fit for what you're trying to do, but you kept going with them. And so you learned that before the company was maybe reaching even higher levels and it would have been in a such much more difficult experience if you had to go through that lesson at a later stage, right? It's true. I will say, I can't say 100% that I made the right decision. You know, I look back on it and I think if I hadn't done that, if the co-founder had stayed, is it possible that we would be, we have, we have 2 million users now, but is it possible that we'd have 20 million users? You know, you never know. There's no way to look back and A-B test these things. 
I still think it was a valuable lesson to learn to to go down this one path. And that's why I do think there's nothing quite like starting a company and building something. I am in the position now, as I'm sure you can imagine, during the pandemic where our business has all but disappeared. And that's heartbreaking on a lot of levels. I do think there is a travel will come back and hit list will continue. But it's easy to get down about that. But I uh, was talking to another founder friend, and she said, you just got a PhD in entrepreneurship, you got a PhD in startups. And I was like, that's actually that 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 is true. That is really true. Um, I feel I know that if I start something again from scratch, I am going to be so much better equipped to do this than I would be otherwise. I don't regret taking this path at all. Yeah. And that's what matters, right? That's what matters for you personally. I would imagine that there is no regrets in what you've done with your life. That's amazing. And I, I love that you've introduced complexity into this conversation, right? Where I was so happily going on about your decision, how 2020, it was the rice and the wise one. And then you just put that complexity into that, which I love because it's true. Things are often more granular or ha have many sides to them. And so it, it's also a good reminder for me to be less binary in the way I think about some of these, of these things. I think one thing that, again, I feel travel teaches me is that there are just, there's so many different ways to be successful or to be beautiful or for something to work, you know, and it's going to be very much in the eye of the beholder. I'm sure there are some people who would make an argument that I should have swallowed the bitter pill. I should have swallowed my pride, given up a little bit of control and built a much bigger company faster. That's one take. And then I took the take that has ended up in this very different path. And oftentimes, it's really all about the takes, right? I heard this question recently, which I really loved. It's like, here's something that happened, right? What, what do you make this mean? What do you make this mean? Because reality or, or facts or something that's happening to us, it's neutral almost. And then what matters is what kind of meaning we take out of what happened to us, right? So I think that's kind of what you're talking about here a little bit. What do you make this, this, this experience mean for you? I, I want to just, there's this funny anecdote. After teaching English in China, I took the Trans-Mongolian Railroad, which is the, it's the Trans-Siberian, but it ends up in Beijing instead. So I, I took it from Beijing to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, to Irkutsk in Siberia, and then across Russia. And there was the, in Mongolia, there was this in-train magazine, I remember, And there was this quote, uh, it was like a traditional Mongolian saying is, a man with regrets is not a man. And <laughs> which I thought was funny, but I, I also just, I loved that sentiment in the sense of, you know, I interpreted it as there's just no point to regret to looking back and feeling bad about the decisions that you made or the choice, the, yeah, the path that your life has taken. I think you can certainly reflect on things and say, maybe I could have made a better decision there and you can learn from them. But just being down about where you are in life or how you've ended up there um, and regretting it is pointless. Um, and it makes, well, it makes you less of a man or whatever. I don't want to make, it's not a gendered thing. It's, it makes you less of a person. I do think uh, for some reason that just struck a chord on me. And I, I feel like I've lived by that principle ever since. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And gosh, I think 
a book of Julian's travel stories uh, across the world would be just such an interesting and, and such an eclectic collection because just the stories that you have from all of your travels. Uh, wow, it's incredible. But tell me, what are you hopeful about right now, right? In this difficult moment where the industry that both of us have a lot of passion and heart for, travel, is struggling a lot. What are you hopeful about? I, I am actually hopeful about, about many things. I think we are at a point where we've obviously been forced to to stop and reflect and potentially turn around and do something new. And to be in that position collectively, globally, is uh, honestly unprecedented. And, and obviously, it's brought a lot of tragedy with it. But I remain hopeful that we can turn this into, in the words of a friend of mine, if a, if a catastrophe is something that, you know, where everything ends up much worse than it was before, she, I don't know if she coined the term or she found it, but a U catastrophe, EU, the, so the Greek prefix mm-hmm. is where something ends up, it's a total destruction, but then things end up much better afterwards. And this idea of creating, turning this into a U catastrophe. So I, I have hope that people will become a lot more aware of their health and the health of their communities and of taking care of those around them and building a more sustainable life. And also I see people potentially migrating towards wanting to live with more people because they realize isolation is very damaging and difficult. And another huge passion area of mine that I can't believe hasn't come up in the course of this conversation yet is, is actually co-living and um, sharing your, your life with other humans as an adult. So I'm very optimistic about the world that can come out of this. And you're right, actually, it's it's funny that we haven't actually talked about that at all. But Julian is an expert in co-living and has founded several co-living communities and has a very interesting blog project that she's working on now, which we'll link to in this episode as well. So definitely check that out. It has a lot of interesting ideas on um, imagining how to live differently in this year 2020 and beyond in ways that, uh, honestly, in the American society have not really been front and center. And that's something that, for me personally, is a, is a topic that I think about often, which is that this siloed, individualized, and lonely way to live is quite prevalent in the Western world and how, you know, how it robs us of so much joy uh, that we that we could otherwise have. I wish we had more time to get into that here today, but it, it's an incredibly fascinating topic, and Jillian is an expert in it, so definitely check it out, and we'll link to it in the show. It's amazing to to hear that you have hope for what is to come, and how we collectively have the power and the ability to reimagine what a lot of our spaces could look like, be it travel, be it living in a different way than we used to live. And I want to ask you this question that I always finish um, our conversations with this question. It's a bit of a big one, but I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about it. Given all the amazing and brilliant things that you've done in your life. So tell me, Jillian, what does it mean to be a woman who is stepping into her brilliance today? I believe it means taking risks and 
being willing to put yourself out there. And to the degree that you can, supporting those who don't have the same ability to take risks that you do. So I think women very much rise together. It's very important to help each other out, to reach out for someone to extend a hand to you who's ahead of you, but also to reach behind you and make sure you're pulling people up as, at the same time. Yes. Gosh, I love that so much, Jillian. I love, I love that, right? We rise together. It's so true. And I think the more we can foster uh, the kinds of environments and the kinds of conversations where we don't see each other as competition, which is, I think, something that's culturally very much present, right? That's, it's that scarcity thinking that there isn't enough opportunities and we have to compete for them. From that to, no, we rise together. There is enough for everyone. And when I thrive, you thrive. And I just love that sentiment so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jillian, for sharing your brilliance with us today. Thank you, Yulia, for putting this together. I, it's uh, such an important project, and I really look forward to listening to your other episodes. Thanks again for listening today. I hope you found this hour helpful, and if so, please consider subscribing to our show so you never miss an episode. If you're a new listener, thank you so much for checking out the show. And don't forget, you can find all the resources, links, and show notes at GeniusWomen.com. That's women with an X. So if there was something you wanted to check out, you can always find it over at GeniusWomen.com. That's women spelled as W-O-M-X-N. Thanks again. And I'll see you next week where we have a conversation with an incredible photographer, Instagrammer, and storyteller, Nastasia Jakub, founder of a popular community for women who love to travel called Dame Traveler. See you then.